The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D. from Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm or call into the program with your questions. Now, here's your host, Rev. Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. Thank you to all of you who are listening with us today. We're glad that you're joining us. We know that you're joining us from around the United States, from Canada, and from Ireland, and New Zealand, and all around the world. So we're really glad that you're listening Today we've got an exciting topic. It's called Treating the Spirit. And my guest is Anthony Tony Crawl. Tony's a licensed alcohol and drug counselor and also a person in recovery. And he's going to tell us a lot today about what he thinks about uh, treatment and how spirituality and treatment go together and what some of the things are that need to be different about today's treatment. And also he's going to be talking with us about what he thinks are the responsibilities of recovering people in a changing world. So we'll hear more from Tony in just a minute. We'll hear from him in a moment. But again, I want to thank you all for listening and know that you can visit the Spirit of Recovery Wall on Facebook. So I hope that you do is find us on Facebook. You can friend us. And also there's always a new discussion thread about the week's topic. And so we welcome you posting on that. I know also that you're letting your friends and those people in your recovery community and in your unity community and your spiritual circles and your friendship circles know about Spirit of Recovery, and that's great. We want to get the word out. We love broadcasting on the topic of recovery on Unity Online Radio, unity.fm. And thank you for your emails and for your calls. We like hearing from you, and we want you to participate in the conversation. Every week we're talking about topics that are important to the recovery community and our guests are always people that are down to earth, that are knowledgeable and that are innovative. They're people who are in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people. And our guests are always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. The Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place, and so if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of addiction, or if you're a family member that's in your own recovery, 
or a family member or a friend of someone that has the disease of addiction, whether or not that loved one is in recovery, whether you're just simply somebody looking for information or you're curious about the process of recovery, you're welcome here on our program, and we welcome you to participate in our discussions, to ask a question, to make a comment via email or the phone line. And again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity Minister and an Addictions Counselor. I'm also a person who has in my circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of addiction. And about 30 years ago, those relationships got me on a path of recovery as a family member, got me interested in my own spiritual growth and development. And ever since then, my walk has been an integration of unity principles and recovery principles. I've met lots of great friends on this pathway, and uh, my life keeps transforming and getting better and better. So I love having the opportunity to bring to our listeners guests that also walk this path and have lots to share with you. Know that also on every show we have a drawing and we give away a recovery book, and these books are donated to us by the nonprofit Hazelden Foundation. That's www.hazelden.org, and that's H-A-Z-E-L-D-E-N. So we thank Hazelden a lot for donating the books. Today's book is When Misery is Company, End Self-Sabotage and Become Content, and the author is Anne Catherine. So that if you email us, we'll get that during the show, or if you call us on our phone line, which is 888-55-U-N-I-T-Y, You can uh, put your name in for the drawing, and you might win this book, When Misery is Company in Self-Sabotage and Become Content. So we'd love to be able to send that book to you. Today, we are talking about treating the spirit, and my guest is Tony Crawl. Tony is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. He has an MA in addictions counseling. He's a residential services manager at Project Turnabout, which is in southwest Minnesota, This is a large residential alcohol, drug, and gambling treatment center, and Tony also has extensive health care experience. He's a registered nurse, and he's been a medic with the National Guard, so he had that health care experience even before he became an addictions counselor. Tony also entered his personal recovery in 2004, and it was this, his own experience, and also his experiences in health care while working with trauma victims who had been affected by addiction that got him to be an addictions counselor. Tony is really committed to assisting other people to find their paths to personal and family recovery from addiction and other mental health disorders. He has a website, TaurusAndEagleRecovery.com, and that's T-A-U-R-U-S-A-N-D, E-A-G-L-E, recovery.com, and where he's got lots of good information there on that personal recovery walk, and he also has a blog, so you can look him up on the internet if you'd like to participate in his blog and see what um, he has to share about recovery on his internet site. So, Tony, welcome. So glad that you're here with us today. Thanks, Ian. I'm really excited about about uh, being on your show today, and um having an opportunity to talk to a wider um, audience about some of the things that I'm really passionate about, both in recovery, um, in treatment, and in finding a way to live a life that's really satisfying and fulfilling. 
Tony, you believe that treatment needs to change, needs to keep up with the times. What needs to be different? You know, one of the things that is becoming really apparent in in the era of healthcare reform, um, you know, tightening budgets at the state level, is that, frankly, it's getting much more difficult for people who suffer from addictions to actually get the treatment um, that they need. Um, for instance, the state of Minnesota, which which at one point was literally considered the mecca of treatment, um, one of the sort of jokes was the land of 10,000 treatment centers. Um, as, as recently as three or four years ago, was 48th in the nation in access to treatment for people who needed it. Um, that's since moved up. I think it's about 37th now in access. The particular region of the state that I'm in has the highest number of people who need treatment but are unable to get it um, of any area in the nation. What's this at? Hello? I can hear you. Oh, you can hear me? Oh, good. All right, you're thinking. I wasn't sure if you could hear me. Um, you did click out for just a second. Okay. Um, so a- as we go forward, what's, what's becoming apparent is that, one, um, we need to have affordable treatment systems um, that, that people can access. Um, it's also becoming apparent that there's going to need to be a higher degree of, of patient aid available um, to help people with things like insurance, co-pays, um, folks who, who can, can maybe come up through family resources or, or other networks, part of the cost of treatment, but may, may not be able to completely uh, fund treatment. And also taking a look at for certain people who are either, you know, repeaters into treatment, um, have issues with uh, chronic relapse, or people who have very significant issues along with their chemical dependency, either psychological concerns or significant medical concerns, we need to be able to develop affordable long-term uh, treatment experiences. Is it just a lack of funding that prevents that, or is it societal attitudes? What is it that creates the problem? I think it's a combination of both. One of the things that um, most recently that we've seen is um, politicians advocating for a hard cap on a number of treatments that patients can receive. We believe that that reflects some of the stigma that addiction still carries. Um, it's, it's very easy when you take a person who has cancer, for instance, you know, which is a, which is a chronic disease, could potentially be fatal. People seem very willing to um, really go to the wall for people and, and find ways to support um, you know, you just look at, at nationally, 
the efforts that are being made to raise money um, for breast cancer, for prostate cancer, um, other forms of cancer, and, and that's wonderful. But you don't get the same level of grassroots type um, social activism or um, benevolence when you're talking about people who suffer from addiction because there is still an attitude in many people that it is a problem that is self-induced. There are movements such as Voices for Recovery and so forth that do try to make change in a societal level. They do political action trying to influence legislation about treatment provision and try to change societal attitudes. How successful do you believe they're being? The hardest thing about um, sort of the grassroots effort is the legacy of 12-step recovery is that it's an anonymous program. And one of the things that when, when people read um, the uh, traditions of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, it states that we cannot identify ourselves as a member of a 12-step recovery program in a public setting. It does not say that we, cannot, I, that we can't identify ourselves as a person in recovery. Um, in order to, there's uh, sort of a grassroots advocacy group in Minnesota, which is called the Minnesota Recovery Connection, and recently they've been very active in trying to get people who are in recovery to come out and become socially active, um, particularly around um, hearings uh, determining state budget and what funding uh, sources might be available in the public sector for treatment. Um, on March 31st, at, they actually have a recovery day at the Capitol in Minnesota where, where they're trying to, to gather a large number of recovering people to stand up and make their voices heard about uh, the necessity to keep the safety net of publicly funded treatment available. Right. Perhaps they, I know Voices of Recovery also has a, campaign, either video or live, not sure, where they invite people with, that have long-term recovery to stand up and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and to show people that they are having success in their lives, to give a different picture of somebody that's got the disease of addiction, somebody that's in recovery. And that's exactly what we need, Anna. Um, recovery needs to have a faith. Whether it's, whether it's the face of the individual recovering person or it's the face of the family member who, who has experienced that amazing change from a life of chaos, um, hurt, and despair to positive relationships with a person who has found recovery and with their own personal recoveries through some type of a family program, um, be that a 12-step recovery program or attending a family program at a treatment facility. Family recovery is essential. You deal with that in treatment. As you said, there's often family programs in treatment centers. What are the family dynamics that 
uh, help recovery both for the family member themselves and also for the person in recovery? What's what needs to change to support recovery for family members? I think the biggest thing is information. Um, you know, it's really a responsibility of treatment providers, um, and and there's a wide variety of ways this is done. Um, to provide education to the family members of the people who are receiving treatment services, to help them understand um, disease as the addiction as a disease, um, that while the person is not necessarily in control of their chemical use. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their behavior, but it takes time before a family can heal. Um, one, of the, one of the books that you and I both um, got to look at when we were in grad school together was um, Stephanie Brown and Virginia Lewis's book, The Alcoholic Family in Recovery. Right. And, and that text really talks about a developmental model um, towards family recovery in which the family's process of recovering parallels the person who is recovering from the actual addiction. And, and each party, if you will, um, has to follow their own process before the family can heal as, as a whole. Um, in other words, needing to both the family and, and the actual alcoholic or addict um, have to go through their own recovery process. Um, otherwise, the family can unwittingly either sabotage the person's recovery, or um, be manipulated by someone. So a key component of recovery is that family recovery, both for the family members on benefit as well as supporting that person that's got the disease of addiction. I, I believe it's essential. Um, the one thing that we do know in dealing with... Um, the addict or alcoholic in treatment every day, is that there's tremendous amounts of fear, um, anger, shame, guilt on both sides. Um, the addict or the alcoholic may certainly have that as a result of things that they have done. Um, the family may also have that same or a similar uh, shame, guilt, fear, and anger either about things the addict has done or things they have done or their inability to help the addict get better. Thank you, Tony. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll start with the Serenity Minute, and then we'll hear more from my guest, Tony Crawl, about treating the spirit. Give us a call at 888-55-UNITY or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, 
This programming is made possible through the generous love offerings of listeners like you. If you feel spiritually fed by this programming, we invite you to contribute. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. being called to vibrate from our internal space of love and light. From this space, all gifts of joy, peace, and prosperity flow to you. Won't you join us on this journey? Find your light and love by participating in a powerful sacred chant retreat this April 3rd through 9th in Nosada, Costa Rica. Join Sanatam Kaur, Guru Ganesha Singh, and the team of Spirit Voyage teachers as we tap into that place within love and light. During this retreat, you can immerse yourself in daily yoga, meditation, and the sacred sound current set against the tropical background of Nosada, Costa Rica. Space is limited. To register for the Spirit Voyage event, go to www.spiritvoyage.com retreat. We'll see you in paradise. Good parenting doesn't happen by default. It is intentional. It is a decision about who you will be and what you will do in your family life. Join your hosts, Reverend Jennifer and Ogan Holder, each week for Unity Family Matters. Experience the light side of parenting, realizing your divine identity while raising your children to know they are the light of God. Gain insights based on Unity principles, talk with today's prominent experts in spiritual parenting, and address your questions and comments from spiritual perspectives. Unity Family Matters, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. If you'd like to join the discussion, please call us toll-free at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. We now return to the program. You're listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you'd like to share your questions, comments, and experience with today's topics, Call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad that you're with us today, glad you're listening. If you're just joining us, our topic today is treating the spirit, and my guest is Tony Crawl. Tony is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. He has an MA in addictions counseling from Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. And he is the residential services manager at a large residential alcohol, drug, and gambling treatment center in southwest Minnesota, and that is Project Turnabout. And Tony also has extensive healthcare experience. He's a registered nurse and has practiced that for over 20 years and has also been a medic with the National Guard. 
and Tony has also in personal recovery, and he loves assisting other people in finding their paths to personal and family recovery from addictions and other mental health disorders. He's got a website, TaurusAndEagleRecovery.com, spell the way it sounds, T-A-U-R-U-S, and EagleRecovery.com, and also has a blog, so if you want to participate in his blog, you can find him on the web. But before Tony and I continue our discussion about treating the spirit, I invite you to join me as we take just a moment to center ourselves in peace of mind in our Serenity Minute. So I invite you to relax and focus on this constructive thought. Let yourself be refreshed by the spirit that lives within you. The thought for today is my recovery makes a positive difference in the world. My recovery makes a positive difference in the world. Thank you, friends, for joining me in this Serenity Minute. I hope you feel refreshed. And now we're back with my guest, Tony Crawl, talking about treating the spirit. This is a great time to give us a call or send us an email. Give us any comments or questions that you might have for Tony. You can email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm, or you can, we'll get it right here and right now, or you can call us at 888-55-UNITY. And if we hear from you, we'll also put your name in for the drawing for our book given to us by Hazelden Foundation, and that book today is When Misery is Company, in Self-Sabotage and Become Content. And the author is Anne Catherine. So, Tony... Right before the break, we were talking about family recovery and how important it is for the family members to uh, take care of their own serenity, and that supports them, and it also supports the person that's got the disease of addiction. We talked about the idea that uh, spirituality is um, a part of, has been part of the 12-step programs for a long time. Is it still a part of a relevant part of treatment or not? You were telling us about the psychological aspects of treatment and how important that is, and for us to have a greater psychological understanding. I don't know, a spirituality passe. Um, I certainly don't think so, um, and that's based on a number of different things. Um, first off, my own personal recovery. Um, without without making a connection to that which I hold to be right, good, and true. Now, whether you want to call that a soul, whether you want to call that a spirit, whether you want to call that a set of values, you know, a moral compass, um, whatever, that, whatever that is. Um, it wasn't until, um, in essence, I became a seeker of what it was that I really and truly believed in, and through um, the process of going through treatment and finding recovery, realizing that, one, I had values, and two, that um, I was pretty passionate about them, and, and three, that as long as I remained a seeker, that I continually, continuously looked to enhance those values, um, develop myself personally, um, and be of service to others, that I got to stay in recovery, and I got to be happy. 
And um, at the point in time that I found personal recovery, I didn't think that was possible. I really didn't think that was possible. Some people believe that spirituality has to do with relationships. What do you think about that? I think spirituality is completely about relationships. Um, First, what I was just talking about is that relationship with ourselves. It's probably the last thing that our addiction takes away from us um, is the relationship with the actual relationship with ourself. I um, I heard a speaker who said, you know, it was when they took away my self-respect that I knew I was done. When when this individual no longer could look at himself in the mirror and have respect for himself. Um, he realized he was beaten by his addiction. And and I thought that to be incredibly poignant, um, and, it, and it really made a lot of sense to me um, when I was early in early recovery. Um, the other piece, you know, I listened to your, um, your little uh, recovery minute, and my recovery makes a positive difference in the world. I think that was one of the other real core components um, that I was acquainted with when I found recovery. Um, I was fortunate enough to have another family member find recovery around the same time uh, that I did. And the change in the relationship um, I had with this person simply on the basis that we were both in recovery. We were both working recovery programs. We were both trying to practice a certain way of life allowed us to have a relationship, which otherwise I don't believe that we could have had. Um, And, you know, I continue to try to surround myself with people who, who have a similar philosophy um, in order to, um, you know, stay spiritually on track myself. That's interesting that you say that both you and the family member being in recovery made a relationship possible. What's different about behaviors, attitudes, when people are in recovery? Why is it that relationships are possible then, but maybe not when not so great when people are active in the disease of addiction? Or as family, active in, as family members in their disease, as family members? I think the most important thing is it gives you a set of ground rules. Um, you know, whether you, whether you follow a 12-step recovery program or whether you're involved in a, in a um, you know, religious-based recovery program or whether you find personal recovery through, through the use of a, of a, a therapist, who, who can really help you set that set of ground rules for how people interact within a relationship. Um, that was probably the biggest thing for me is now when there's conflict, I can refer back to principles of my personal recovery and use that as a basis to communicate with other people. Um, you know, kind of the, okay, 
take a step back and, and how would I feel if I was in their position? What is the way that serves more than just my personal interest? So recovery opens up the possible... The- the circle. It's not just about a self-centered, fear-based, what's what's in it for me or what's going to happen to me. It opens up and realizes that there are other people involved and what's good for one, really good for one, possibly good for us all. Um, it truly is. Um, you know, one of, one of the old um, sort of sayings is that, you know, each, each active addict or alcoholic affects at least 20 other people. Um, to me, it is, it is absolutely amazing the number of people that we can affect if we find recovery. Um, I was speaking with uh, one of um, the counselors that works at my facility about a week and a half ago and um, just talking about treatment philosophy and maybe some of her future goals. And she made the comment to me that, you know, one of my goals has always been to work with children. And she said, when I got into this field, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fulfill that goal. And then I realized that for every woman that I work with that finds recovery, how many children does that help? And, and I thought that was just brilliant insight on her behalf that, that she, could, she could play that out and say, you know, if I help this young lady find recovery, maybe she doesn't have any children yet. But she may go on to have children. And, and you know, I could affect the work that we do now may affect the lives of those future children. Um, you know, it may be a person who currently has children. It may be a person who has grandchildren. And just like the legacy of addiction carries on, the legacy of recovery can carry on also. You've seen that in your personal life from generation to generation. I have. Um, you know, I come from I come from a family where there certainly was was a high degree of chaos um, as I was growing up. Um, I don't know that there was active addiction. If there was, it would have been worse. And in my own family, once I was able to find personal recovery and really internalize. The, the spiritual principles that went along with recovery, um, you know, the concept of forgiveness, um, the concept of acceptance, the concept of surrender, um, the concept of, of looking outside of my own uh, self-centered interest. Um, it created the opportunity for tremendous healing um, within relationships within my family of origin, um, which I don't know if I would have been able to maintain recovery had that healing not happened. Um, and these are now some of the greatest relationships that I could ever personally have. 
and I've seen it with other people as well. Does forgiveness mean that it didn't matter what if, if painful things happened in the past that you just go like, oh, well, it wasn't that bad? You know, that was my misconception um, when for most of my life, and, and I find in, in speaking with people who are in treatment that it, it really is a, a common misconception. In my opinion, forgiveness does not mean you condone what happened. Um, certainly there are terrible things that happen to people, um, you know, in the area of, of abuse, um, loss. Um, you know, you could, you could in, in essence, pick a litany of, of the problems of the world. Saying I forgive you does not mean that I condone what you did. It just simply means that I will no longer be held hostage to the memory of what you did. In essence, I release myself from the bondage of whatever the situation was. And you say that's helped you, you believe, to stay in recovery. How is that? How, if you hadn't been able to release from that bondage, that it would have kept you in the disease? Well, it's interesting. Um, for, for anybody who's listening who, who has read um, the book Alcoholics Anonymous or um, is maybe interested in reading the, books, al- the book Alcoholics Anonymous, um, there, there's a line um, in Chapter 5 that says, Resentment is the number one offender. Um, and one of, in an old uh, recovery saying is, all it takes to get drunk is one good mad. Um, we frequently see people who return to treatment um, after a relapse, and you sit down and talk to them and you ask them what happened. You know, just, just play it through for me. And invariably, um, a resentment comes up. There was some situation that they could not make peace with that, in essence, they returned to chemical use rather than dealing with that issue. Do you believe that's conscious? I don't. Is it a- um, I don't believe it's a. I don't believe it's necessarily. I, I guess I should clarify with you um, the process of holding on to a resentment or the process of relapse. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the process of relapse, or yeah, that first. I believe that it's largely subconscious. Um, there certainly are people who um, come to treatment uh, that really don't have any intention of quitting using chemicals. I really think that's the minority. I think the great majority of people who come to treatment appreciate at some level that their chemical use or behavior, um, you know, in the, in the case of a process addiction, um, such as gambling, they get at some level that their life is being made more difficult, that their relationships are being affected by 
whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, or gambling that they're involved in. The problem is they have no solution. Um, their solution, in fact, has been their addiction. And as long as a person believes at some level, um, whether it's fully conscious or whether it's sort of at a subconscious level, that there is a situation where my addiction will still work to solve a problem. The door is open to relapse. Tony, thank you. This is great stuff. You're giving us some really uh, interesting insights. We're going to take a break. Thanks to our callers and to our listeners for being with us today. We hope you will call in or send us an email. We'll be right back. Do you ask with childlike wonder, what is the nature of God? Who is Jesus? What is the Christ? How do we know what we know? When you ask these or other heart-centered questions about the non-physical, intangible aspects of life, you are, on some level, a student of metaphysics. New from Unity House and nearly five years in the making, Heart-Centered Metaphysics, a deeper look at Unity teachings, is now available. This is Paul Hasselbeck, author of this quintessential study guide. Enjoy a deeper exploration of universal spiritual principles and truths, whether you are just starting or have been seeking for years. Each thought-provoking chapter of Heart Center Metaphysics speaks to truth-seekers like you, providing essential tools to help elevate your consciousness and create spiritual transformations in your outer life and circumstances. Order your copy today from the Unity Online Store at www.unity.org. Then click on Shop. The Unity message is universal, uniting, empowering, and transformational. Carrying this message to the world with the power of music and song are scores of singers and songwriters who dedicate their extraordinary gifts to helping heal the world and spread the message of unity and oneness. These are the Messengers of Unity. We salute the Messengers of Unity. The voices of the one voice of all humanity. Tune in to Pazapalooza, music that matters, with host Richard McDesey to hear the music and the artists who are changing the world, one song at a time. Fridays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. You can join the discussion now by calling us toll-free at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Now, back to the program. You've been listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you have a question, comment, or experience with today's topic you'd like to share, Call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to the Spirit of Recovery. We're very glad that you're listening with us today. 
And if you're just joining us, our topic is Treating the Spirit, and my guest is Tony Crawl. Tony is a treatment provider. He's a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and he is a residential services manager at uh, Project Turnabout, which is in southwest Minnesota, that has drug, alcohol, and gambling treatment there. And Tony also is a registered nurse and has extensive healthcare experience. And he's talking with us today about spirituality and treatment and spirituality and recovery. So... Before the break, we were talking about whether or not relapse is a conscious process, and you were kind of weighing in on not really, not really conscious, kind of something that sneaks up on you. But one of the resentment. Go ahead. Well, just to kind of finish the the previous thought about um, relapse, um, one of the things that that I believe in that we we work with um, pretty frequently uh, with folks who have relapsed is, is the idea that, you know, addiction is a chronic disease. And what we know about chronic diseases is that they're prone to relapse. Um, take anyone who has diabetes, um, anybody who has high blood pressure. Um, if you're not able to follow certain lifestyle changes, you may end up with, you may relapse into your chronic medical condition of diabetes and, or uh, high blood pressure. And addiction is, is similar in that aspect. If you do not follow through with certain lifestyle changes, um, you run a higher risk of relapsing into active chemical use. Um, what we see frequently when we help people walk through their, their relapse, is that oftentimes there were very subtle behavioral changes, um, attitude changes um, that were happening weeks, days, weeks to sometimes months before the person actually took that first drink, first drug, or placed the first bet in the case of gamblers. And they are most often not aware of those changes. The benefit of being connected to a support group of people who have been through what you are going through is that they can often identify those sudden behavioral changes um, before you can and, and can point them out to you and help you uh, sort of get back on track um, before you actually proceed to the point of taking that first drink. What does a spiritual experience have to do with preventing relapse, if anything? Well, in its, in its purest form, if you, if you go back to 12-step philosophy, um, a, spirit, a spiritual experience is termed as a psychic change sufficient to overcome addiction. Now, um, there's many ways that a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening um, can happen. Um, as many ways as there are people. One way is through working a 12-step program of recovery. Um, Some people find it through working a faith-based program. Um, Other people find it through maybe a sudden experience where they realize that their life is not going in a direction that they really want. 
and that may be sufficient, although that is very rare. Um, oftentimes, um, it's more of a gradual process. Um, you know, I spoke earlier in the show about realizing that I need to be a seeker in life, and, and that's the attitude I try to encourage in, in people that I speak to about recovery, whether it be in, in my daily work or personal life, is be a seeker. Continue to look for those experiences which enhance your life and the lives of those around you in a positive fashion. And that's where I really believe the spirit lives. It lives in that enhancement of our relationships um, interpersonally, the, the enhancement of our relationship to a God of our understanding. Um, an enhancement of the relationship with ourselves. You speak about treatment needing to be updated in some ways. Not That doesn't mean taking the spirituality out of it, but you do talk about presenting treatment in a way that's going to appeal to the person of today. What do you think needs to be different? Um... One of the things that I think is we need to embrace technology. Um, the person of today, um, for instance, I was giving a talk at a, at a school last week, and I was using a, a laptop and a DLP projector, and something popped up on the screen, and you know I was pressing buttons and it wasn't working, and I looked at, I had a, a small audience of 14 and 15-year-olds and I looked at him and said, okay, which button do I push? And one of the kids immediately said, just push this button on your computer. Pushed it, problem solved. This is, what, this is the type of person and the type of process we're dealing with today. Um, getting back to, I think, looking at some of the material that's being developed in education, um, as far as attention span, um, what type of materials are likely to work for a particular audience, um, whether that be young people. Um, for instance, in, in our treatment center, we may have people on the same unit from 17 up into their 50s and 60s. Now, there's radically different ways of processing information in all of those generations. Um, and tailoring the materials that we provide to help educate our patients and to help connect with our patients to what their learning style is, is I think, crucial. And I also think it's really an underdeveloped area in, uh, in treatment materials right now. What type of treatment materials would you hope would be developed? Um, I think we're going to need to look at, at things like um, at, you know, online materials in the, in the area of, of podcasts, short videos. Um, I think there's probably a place for developing some type of um, you know, computer-based assessment or, or intervention uh, materials that are that are interactive, 
that people can walk through a process. You know, if you never pick up a book anymore because all of your material is on your Kindle or your phone, you know, or your laptop, um, and people ask you, well, here's this pamphlet. I want you to read this pamphlet and fill out this worksheet. It's hard to make the connection. Um, and, and I wonder at times whether the person who is technologically savvy looks at this material and says, why would I bother with that? It's not up to date just because, the fact, just because of the fact it's not being delivered on a computer. You know, some people would say, some more traditionalist type people might say, well, if you put all this educational material and treatment on high-tech delivery systems, you're taking the humanity out of it, you're taking the spirituality out of it, you're, you're removing the human factor that's so important. What do you think? Hey, I don't agree with that because... Recovery does not happen in isolation. Um, I think how you deliver educational materials, it becomes more of an educational psychology factor. Um, What really sustains people in recovery is relationships. Um, You can can go back to choice theory, which, which says that we only need one positive relationship in order to begin change in our life. For the person who comes into treatment, that first positive relationship might be their primary counselor. Um, That first positive relationship might be a peer that is the first person who, when they sat down with, understood them at sort of the operator level um, with their chemical dependency. They, they develop the fellowship and the knowledge that, you know what, I don't have to explain every detail to this person and have them look at me strange because they understand through the, through the experience of being there. And that I don't think is ever going to change. So it's just the, de- the informational delivery system. You're really not saying just sit them down to a computer and that's going to fix them up. No. Um, but it's, it's a tool. Um, if, if you look at, at treatment, if you look at any um, helping uh, profession, um, you go in equipped with a certain set of tools. Um, in my nursing career, you know, I might have gone in to, to a patient's room and I had a set of tools with me. I had a thermometer, I had a blood pressure cuff, I had a stethoscope, and those tools, along with my ability to interact with the patient and my five senses, were what allowed me to complete an assessment and and make a determination about how best to help this person. It's no different if you move into the treatment field. Um, We have a number of tools. There's certainly psychological tools that a a, a therapist or a psychologist might use. 
um, tests like the MMPI, like the back depression inventory, um, that help give them information. But ultimately, that does not replace the ability to sit down and talk to a person one-on-one. You have to have all components in order for treatment, in order for recovery to be effective. Tony, I've heard you say that a person in recovery has some rent to pay. What's the rent? The rent is helping the next person, very simply. Um, And there's many, many ways you can do that. Um, The rent that you pay in order to save your recovery might be going to your support group meetings um, and participating in that support group. Um, It might be getting involved in the recovery um, community on a greater level in either a service capacity or an advocacy capacity, um, getting involved with one of these grassroots groups that help further the cause of of treatment and recovery um, in communities. It may be something as simple as now you're available to coach your child's soccer team. But you're giving back. And, and service is one of the core components of maintaining healthy recovery. That giving back to um, your family, to your community, um, to your support group, to your faith community. Um, there's many ways that you can do that. It's back to what you said earlier in the program. Spirituality is about relationships. It's about building those connections, about being part of life, not about hiding out. Um, addiction is the great isolator. It's the great eraser. Um, it, releases, it, it erases a relationship with a higher power or a God of our understanding. It erases relationships with other people, and ultimately it erases the relationship with ourselves. Tony, thank you so much. You have really given us a lot today, and I'm glad you're out there doing treatment, and I know you're a blessing to the people that you work with, both your colleagues and those people who are clients in your treatment center and also to the folks that you encounter in your recovery groups and in your friendship circles. So thank you. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. We appreciate it. I, I just, again, I was excited to be, be on the show, and, and I tell people frequently, I'll talk about recovery anytime, place, to anybody. I believe that recovery works. It sure does. So thanks to our listeners. We're really glad that you're with us today, and I know you've been touched by what Tony shared. Join us next week when our guest is Rob R., and our topic is one day at a time. It's not not just cliche. So we'll see you next week. Know you're in my prayers that you are blessed. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific for down-to-earth ideas on keeping spirituality in the heart of your recovery. Spirit of Recovery, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. 
This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at www.soulmatters-spiritworks.org. Things may happen around you, things may happen to you, but the only things that really count are the things that happen in you. This meditative moment from Rev. Eric Butterworth is brought to you by Unity. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. 